Having a shop as part of your cultural organisation can be a surefire way of adding value to the visitor experience, deepening the relationship between you and your visitors, and generating income for your organisation's bottom line. I'm Robin from the Cultural Enterprises Academy, and in this podcast we're looking at buying, the process that gets products on the shelves, which then get the tills ringing. This edition of the podcast is going to be particularly useful to anyone thinking of moving into buying for the first time, anyone who's currently managing a buyer, and there's some top tips for established buyers too. I also now use a lot of Instagram, so I put as many cultural institutions and cultural institutional shops on Instagram, makers, anything like that on. We'll come on to that great discussion with three expert buyers in just a few minutes. First, Even though it can make or break any retail enterprise, the task of buying can be a bit of a behind-the-scenes mystery. So let's hear from my colleague at the Association for Cultural Enterprises, Desi Evangelides. Desi spent a decade working as buying manager for the National Trust, one of the largest cultural enterprises in the UK. And our producer asked her one very simple question, what is buying? Put simply, it's to make money. Of course, it's much, much more than that. Buyers are the people who determine what products get to the shop shelves, in catalogues and online. They do the footwork, the research and create the deals to buy the right quantities of products for their companies and then sell them to the customers or use them to create new materials that then they sell on to customers. The first thing that any buyer will tell you is that they do more than buy. They need a real understanding of the markets in which they operate. They need to understand their customers, especially in the heritage sector. A visitor to a venue is not the same as a customer that buys in the shop. They must not make assumptions. Customers in the heritage sector change throughout the year. They change monthly and weekly, and a savvy buyer understands this and uses this intelligently. Buyers also need to be financially astute. They need to be able to plan and execute a range plan and be able to understand and interrogate data on what is being sold and to be able to cleverly manage stock. In large organisations, there may be a dedicated team to do this. In smaller venues, the buyer will be doing all of this themselves. Either way, the buyer needs enough knowledge to understand, challenge when necessary and to take educated risks. Buyers also need to build up strong and trusting relationships with suppliers. If they fail to do this, then the supply chain can become weak and the risks of the supply chain being unable to cope with sudden variances can become a real threat to the successful flow of supplies. So, buyers need to work with the suppliers to make sure that they can deliver the supplies on a continuous basis and that the price will be as per the price that was agreed. The days of very adversarial approaches to buying have long since disappeared and instead the buyer attempts to work with the supplier to ensure that the supply chain is effective and stable. In a sense, therefore, they're trying to foster good and very positive relationships with suppliers whilst being aware that this is a business arrangement and the contract may be ended at any point. They also need negotiation skills and the ability to influence others. Buyers also have a role in ensuring that the items that they purchase are of good quality and that the quality is consistent within set parameters. There is no point in buying shoddy goods, but the items need to be of a fairly standard quality with little in the way of variations. 
This means that the buyers have to be aware of quality issues and not allow price to outweigh the demand to have good quality products available. This is never more important than when a buyer is developing own label products. Instantly, the buyer, as an individual, and the organisation they represent take on a whole host of additional quality and safety responsibilities, and it's never good enough to not know reputations, especially for the venue, are at stake here. Buyers must also be mindful of how things can change in the marketplace with new products coming onto the market that can replace existing products or goods. For example, if there's a trend in a product, a buyer must quickly decide if it's appropriate for their venue and if so, jump on that trend quickly. A couple of examples of recent trends like this would be colouring books for adults and all the ancillary products that go with that, or the funny ladybird books aimed at adults, not children. A buyer doesn't have to be a designer, but they do need to be able to creatively pull products from a variety of suppliers and fit it together to make a range. If they are creating bespoke products, they will need to be able to brief a supplier or a designer on the requirements that will make their product fit with brand standards for their organisations, as well as packaging. And an analytical approach is needed in all aspects of the job, from analysing trends and consumer buying patterns, to taking action to maximise sales and minimise losses, and placing supplier orders and negotiating prices and delivery contracts. Buyers are often team leaders, and part of their role is to lead and continually motivate their teams, especially if that team includes non-retailers. The retail team are true ambassadors for their venue, and this needs to be embodied in the role of the buyer. The role of the buyer is often quite challenging and can be at times relatively stressful, but it's incredibly rewarding for people who enjoy a multifaceted and challenging role and vitally important to any cultural enterprise which includes retail in the mix. Well, at the heart of a busy Association for Cultural Enterprises conference, I took the opportunity to gather together three people who enjoy that multifaceted role and have many years of experience of buying for cultural enterprises. We had a really wide-ranging discussion and there's lots to chew over. I'll let them introduce themselves. I'm Laura Pryke. I'm the retail manager at Kettles Yard in Cambridge. I'm Catherine McGoldrick. I'm the retail manager at National Museums Northern Ireland. And I'm Perry Bushell. I'm a commercial consultant specialising in product development and buying. Thanks very much. And all of you are working in the retail space, which is a huge part of the world of cultural enterprises and a space in which buyers are absolutely critical. So I want to start by asking you, is the role of buyers in cultural enterprises understood? Do people know what you do and how critical you are in your organisations? I don't think they do, no. I think there's a perception that sometimes the stock just arrives, kind of magically, and I think people are sometimes surprised when they come over to the desk and you're looking at catalogues and pouring over trade things. Um, so I don't I don't think they, they do get that. I would say, having come from high street retail as well, I don't think people understand in the sector the difference a buyer can make to whether a business is profitable or not profitable, because really the core of your proposition is product. In the cultural sector, in my experience, everybody's an expert and you know, curators and directors specifically, because they think they're big shoppers, they know exactly what they would do with it when it came to buying. And uh, it's very frustrating. I always use the illusion, I always say, well, I like food, but I'm not a restaurateur, am I? And I'm not a Michelin-starred chef. It doesn't quite work that way. But you know, there's a lot, I think a lot of people think it's very easy to do, when in actual fact it's quite hard to do. 
And so before you ever pick up a catalogue or start to look at products, what do you need to know before you can start to buy for an organisation? Does any product work in any museum, gallery or, or theatre? No, I think it's really important to know your audiences and your collection and the type of people that are coming in. For example, at Kettle's Yard, we get a lot of very discerning visitors that come from design or architecture backgrounds, and they expect a certain level of quality and design and also respect for the collection because it's a very beloved collection for a lot of people. And Catherine, I guess you need to know your audiences too. Where do you get that information from? Is it from standing in the shop and looking at who comes in or are there links to strategies? It's always a good idea to stand in your shop and see who's there, um, see who's buying and also who's not buying, who wanders around and walks back out and think to yourself, well, why, why was it not the product for that person? But the biggest tool that I use and that I think everyone should use and something I think a lot of people don't appreciate is your EPOS data. It's absolutely crucial and essential to what you do because I would find there's often a lot of perceptions around, oh, that product doesn't sell or that, that's a great product. But it's, it's more around people's perceptions or what they really like. But the data doesn't lie. You know, the sales don't lie. And I do rely on it a lot to such an extent that we've just opened the Soyuz capsule, the Tim Peake capsule in our transport museum, and the connection between HQ and stores went down. So sales were fantastic, but I couldn't see the detail. So I had to do my first reorders with a finger in the air, and I was like, oh, <laughs> stressful. And Perry, I guess in this process you have reliable data, you can stand in your shop and look at your audience, but do you also have to manage the perceptions of senior colleagues and uh, trustees and other who, who believe they know what should be in the shop because absolutely. if they like it, it must be good? Yeah, absolutely. It, I mean, it depends on the organisation you're in, but I mean, I've certainly worked in organisations where, especially product for exhibitions, you'd have to actually get approval by the curator before you could actually place the orders because they'd be quite sniffy about the sort of thing you took, which is fair enough. I think that, that was all a matter about building up trust with, with curators staff that they begin to trust your judgment that you weren't going to embarrass the organization and that what you bought would be in line with the ethos and values of the institution which is what you want to be doing but I think I'll go back to your points the main thing with product is knowing who your customers regardless of where you get that from market research standing in your shop etc because you can only really buy properly if you know who you're actually selling to so we found out who your customer is and now let's think about you as the customer you're setting out on your buying journey how do you go about finding suppliers and product once you've got that sense of who it is that's coming to your shop i think within the cultural sector we're quite lucky to have ace for a start a really fantastic bespoke trade show that we've got here and you know that that's really helpful i mean i was at spring fair earlier this year and it's so gigantic that probably about one percent of it was relevant for me and probably for other cultural buyers as well so we really use that i steal a lot i think i think steal ideas of every point. I go looking at other institutions all the time and if I find products I like I'll take a photograph see if I can find out who the supplier is basically copy it. Catherine your tips for finding yeah, suppliers. Yeah I mean there's, there's always the trade shows there's trekking the trade shows and doing all of that and um, I also now use a lot of Instagram so I put as many cultural institutions and cultural institutional shops on Instagram makers anything like that on. Um, I have a lot of book publishers and things like that also on Twitter so there's a constant flow of ideas and, and things like that so even last week I saw on Twitter there was a, a brand new book published in the area of the troubles which is very resonant with you know our collections and what we do um, but my books player hadn't flagged it up to me so I was flagging it up to him you know 
I need this book. So it's just, you know, you're constantly surrounded everywhere by inspiration, whether it is Instagram, Twitter, other people's shops, everywhere. And I do do the same as well and take pictures. Of, and sometimes they're trying to be best-selling lines for us. Catherine, you mentioned makers. Laura, anybody stepping into the shop at Kettle's Yard would recognise that makers have a really strong presence there. How do you go about finding the designer makers you work with? Instagram actually is one of the biggest ones um, and what's great about that is a lot of makers that we already work with or stock there's a huge community on Instagram so often it's from makers that I already deal with will then be posting about you know their friends and colleagues and it leads it leads you on a sort of chain of finding new resources all the time. And does it become a relationship I mean do you have favoured suppliers who you kind of come back to time and again? Yeah, definitely. And the thing I like about working with kind of small scale designer makers is they're always so up for collaboration. Our collection is primarily 20th century artworks. So there's a lot of copyright issues, estates that are very reluctant to sort of commercialise their images. So we work around that by you know, working with illustrators or taking inspiration from sort of the non-artworks in our collection. And we can often do that in a very kind of toe-in-the-water way because designer makers, you know, they're kind of willing to work to sort of low quantities to give things a go. You know, they perhaps have quite low overhead, so there's less risk for them to take on a new project. And given the, the huge diversity of the, the sector, this might be a, a very broad question, but whenever I talk to people about the work of retailers in the cultural enterprise sector, I find myself saying it's more than fridge magnets. So what about the product mix in any successful retail space? What are we looking for in building a good product mix? Mm. I think, again, I go back to knowing who your customer is. You know, if you've got, if 80% of your visitors are school groups and children, then you're going to be weighted that way and you are going to have a lot of fridge magnets and a lot of pick and mix. If you've got 50 or 60% of your of your customers are, are adults or cultural enthusiasts, or however we want to bracket them, then you can obviously go a bit more at market. I mean, you know, when I worked, the last uh, gallery I worked at, we were selling everything from, from 70 pence postcards to 10,000 pound limited edition prints because we had that diversity of people coming through the door. And as long as you've got that, you can then cater to whatever it is they're going to be after. I would say the same. And the other thing to bear in mind is that the profile changes, you know, with regards to what's on in your institution. Mm-hmm. So I was talking there about doing Museum Shop Sunday and the, the visitor profile and target market for 2017 when we had Weeping Window was very different to 2018 when we had Dippy. So it's all about um, responding to what's coming up and what your exhibitions are and, you know, being flexible with that profile. And it it also is about trying new things across your price points, constantly pushing, you know, they like this, maybe they'll like that, and they paid this, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll pay that. You know, I think the most important thing is never to get sort of stuck into, this is my customer, that's what they want, end of. You know, you've got to constantly develop and change with the customer and with the trends and with your exhibitions. I've been seeing more demand for kind of souvenirs that are are sort of functional or something that people would buy in their own right. They're not just buying it because they've come to visit you that day. So things like jewellery, but the packaging is branded with Kettle's Yard. And, you know, so it becomes a souvenir, but it's also something that if they'd seen it and it's, you know, out of context, they'd been interested too. And it's perhaps kind of offshoot of the general sort of consumer movement to sort of 
be more thoughtful and mindful about what you're buying. So, you know, people are maybe looking at traditional souvenirs like fridge magnets and seeing it as, you know, something that they're going to condo out uh, <laughs> in the next cull. So, uh, Catherine, you mentioned data and EPOS systems mm-hmm earlier on but how much of your role is more art than science i think i think the art comes based on top of that layer of knowledge that you've built up so because i would constantly be looking at the items and looking at the sales you when you see something sometimes you say that's that's my market you know so when thames and hudson did the you know cats in art notepads and note cards i immediately said that's our ladies you know, they, they love a cat, they'll fly out. I didn't anticipate how quickly they would fly out because they really love them. But you, you get that, you know, you, you need to have the eye for spotting the product that ties in with your customer, but it's based on this really sound knowledge of who those people mm. are. And, you know, you, you've, you've built up that knowledge over the years, constantly analysing and tracking and seeing what works and what doesn't work and the right price points for you. Perry, art or science? Well, I, I think a bit of both, actually. But but, uh, but like Catherine said, I think it's it is an art, but you base it on as much science as you possibly can. You you can have the perfect product that ticks every single box, and it just doesn't sell. Sometimes you can have a product that you think mm, it's a bit left field, and it goes bananas. You know, so you just, I, I'd say I would always say after you've got a bit of experience, trust your instincts. For me, at the moment at Kettle's Yard, it's kind of been art out of necessity because we've just completed our first year of trading since a big redevelopment the shop now is kind of unrecognizable from what we had before so I had no real meaningful kind of figures and data to actually go off and that's probably something that I need to get a bit more scientific about for the year going (laughs) forward. And being in that position How much of a factor was ethical sourcing? Is it something that matters to your purchases? And is it something that you consider as an organisation when you're buying? I set out to kind of purposely try and source as much um, in the UK and a lot of it from small-scale makers. So I've noticed that our suppliers increasingly, you know, sending our deliveries wrapped in paper, no bubble wrap, they're they're using, you know, responsible alternatives, and we are trying to follow that lead with our outgoing orders because I think it is something that customers are interested in, you know, minimal packaging on our fridge magnets and our kind of notebooks and things. Catherine, how about for you? Is it something that you're purchasers have expressed to you that they are concerned about at all? It's not but I think it's coming Um, I think it's very much on the up and become people become much more conscious we've always had sort of an eco and fair trade area in the shop which works really well for us and you know anything that is branded really well like shared earth jewellery and things like that we work with just trade quite a lot you know that really works very very well for us but I do think that going forward there will be a lot more questions asked of us in terms of how do your goods come in how is this made where is it made how is it packaged because there often is quite a lot of excess packaging you know I think we're only at the beginning of people doing that and I think as a because of the sector that we're in there's almost sort of an emphasis on us to start pushing that back to suppliers and saying this is what we want to see and when they get that demand you know they'll make those changes in how they pack things and how they do things okay i'm going to uh, wrap up this conversation by asking each of you in turn what piece of advice you would give to someone starting out as a buyer i would say three things data 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 who's your customer and trust your instincts 
there's a lot around data that you, that you do need to really know and learn your customer but you know if you're coming into a cultural institution and you know maybe you've come from a high street background there's quite a bit to learn in terms of how this sector works you know so something like this is, is very good in sort of getting that connection with other people and understanding some of the difficulties commercial operators experience when they work in this particular very specialized industry so it's really good to come and, and get support from your colleagues and you know find you know workarounds and you know how do you deal with that odd book that somebody wants stocked and things like that thank you for the plug we'll definitely have you on other <laughs> other podcasts laura how about you um yeah i would echo that kind of certainly when i was um starting the shop kind of from scratch um, at Kettle's Yard. You know, I was visiting other institutions, talking to as many people as I could. And I think the great thing about cultural retail is that everyone is very friendly and there's not really that competitiveness. So they're happy to share their figures, share suppliers. You know, it's just, it's it's a nice community that's that's quite different from commercial People are retail. so open and yeah. so open. And, you know, even when we've been doing the Dippy tour, talking to other colleagues, talking to Birmingham before and talking to other people after, it's it's, it's so different from the high street and that you've got that support there that, you know, to be, when you make those connections, then you've got that there. So we posed the question at the start whether buying is a science or an art. We've answered that it's both and that there is a, a community of support around to help people buying in this sector. Thank you so much for being part of this conversation today. Thank you very much to Laura, Catherine and Perry. So we've asked some members of that buying community to give us their top tips for good buying. Ready to be a better buyer? Have a listen. Tip 1. Plan, plan and keep planning. Your museum or venue will have an overall plan. Use it and build your buying plan from it. That way you maximise old selling opportunities. Create a buying plan through research. Financials, sales stats, trade fairs, the marketplace. Plan your range. Create your product strategy and implement it. Then at the end evaluate it and begin again. This plan is your justification for your work, so create it when you have time and headspace to think it through. Tip 2. Get under the skin of your customer. Look through their eyes. Why and when do they visit? What are their expectations? What are the other secondary spend opportunities on site which may compete with the shop? Do you know your average visitor dwell time in your shop? How often do they visit? Is your museum free or charging? Visitors spend more in museums which charge for entry. Who of your visitors are potential customers? What are they interested in? What is the average spend? Segment them, giving them pen portraits as an aid memoir so you can target them whenever you introduce a new product. Tip 3. Inform your strategy with an analysis of past and current performance. Profit is more important than sales value and quantities. What data do you have access to and in what format? Here are some figures you should be able to access easily to inform good buying. Your top line or overview. Overall profit compared this year and last year. 
were the visitor numbers up or down? What was the seasonality of a sales pattern? Did the exhibitions and events impact on these sales patterns? How did each category and each range perform? What's the value of your stock holding? Compare this year with last year, line by line. Tip 4. Create a product strategy. Strategies are longer term vision or direction of travel. Plans are more tactical and for the trading year ahead and fallout from the overall strategy. Decide what is important to you and your venue. Again, have this and you and your team will always be able to articulate your vision to others in the organisation. What do you want to achieve from the product offer? Hard benefits such as sales targets, profits targets, gross margin percentage, soft benefits such as visitor perception, look and feel of the product offer, integrated with the overall museum offer, peer endorsement. Tip 5. Develop and create a written range plan. Decide ranges and categories. Decide sales budgets and targets for margin and stocks. Choose your number of lines. The overall number of lines will be driven by your analysis of current stock. Tip 6. Decide if you are developing a bespoke range at all. This takes a long time to do. Understand the risks. Make sure you have a pricing strategy. Always meet your target margin. Implement your plan. Tip 7. Evaluate. Don't just sit back. Actively manage your business, reviewing and tracking sales performance figures and competitor activities. Take action to maximise sales and minimise losses. And that about wraps it up for buying. If you want to know more, take a look at the Retail Essentials Buying course in the Cultural Enterprises Academy at culturalenterprises.academy. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You'll find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite app. Just search for Cultural Enterprises Podcast. Please do comment, rate or share the podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you've been inspired or challenged, enraged or delighted, we'd love you to get in touch with us directly. You can drop us a line on info at culturalenterprises.org.uk. Please do let us know what subjects you'd like us to cover on the podcast. Until next time, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.